Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there who are positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. My guest today is Brian Lightfoot. Brian is a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder and hopes to earn a doctorate in educational foundations, policy, and practice. He is working on a project involving social capital in hopes of helping students better understand their social connections and to develop skills that will counteract the unequal social networking systems that currently exist. In this episode, Brian discusses his ideas about taking a community-based research approach that creates a mutually beneficial relationship between communities and researchers. He advocates for the idea of focusing on student-led programs that can elevate voices and help us really identify which outcomes families and communities want as we consider how the education system can create better metrics and measurements. He also argues for taking a larger look at the multiple systems, not just the education system, that are so intertwined and working together to create inequitable barriers for families and communities. Thank you for tuning into today's conversation with Brian Lightfoot. Mr. Brian Lightfoot, welcome to Humble Badass Educators. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you for having me. Well, I appreciate you being here. How are you, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a Labor Day weekend, and I'm actually um, feeling uh, pretty relaxed. I've had um, you know a couple of days off to kind of refresh and reflect. So yeah, feeling pretty good. How are you? Doing well. Kind of the same. We, I think we can all use a little bit of R&R about right now. Uh, Brian, tell the listeners about yourself. What makes you a badass, mm-hmm. and where does that intersect with humility? Yeah. Um, I, 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 would, I would consider myself to be a badass by association. Um, a lot of my work is in support of other educators who I think are doing amazing things. And I think this is something that you may be able to relate to. I know um, with this podcast, one of the things that you do is you track down amazing educators and, you know, and you, you listen to their thoughts and, and give them a space to, um, you know, really elevate kind of like their, their visions and their perspectives. Um, and that's something that really resonates with me because, you know, I look at myself as a badass in support of other educators who are, are doing amazing work. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder, and a lot of my work is really rooted in the idea of uh, community-based research, right? So this is this idea that research should be something that benefits the community in which you're researching, right? So oftentimes in um, research, the paradigm is, um, you know, you have researchers like me that go into communities um, that go and uh, 
study the, the challenges and the problems in those communities, and then I go back, I write a, a report, it gets published, and I get um, you know a lot of credit for kind of exposing the issues that are happening in this community, and any benefit that they may receive is gonna be indirect, right? So maybe somebody reads the report, maybe there's a policymaker that takes interest in it and makes a change or something like that, but I extract something from them, right, that provides me value as a, as a researcher, as an academic, right, without giving any direct value back. And I think um, this idea of uh, community-based research really pushes back against that kind of paradigm that says that research should be uh, mutually beneficial. So it should benefit me as a researcher, but it also should benefit the, the community or the people or the organizations I'm working with um, in a direct and tangible way too. So that's kind of the perspective um, that I bring to research. But again, I think, um, because the other part of the question is how does that intersect with humility? And for me, I think it is to step back and say, well, these are the people doing the work or these are the communities that are experiencing, um, you know, these different uh, disparities when it comes to education, right? These are the communities or the people that um, we need to be listening to. These are the voices that we need to be elevating. And just seeing uh, my work and my position um, as something that can either um, refine some of, some of the work that they're doing um, or, or put in processes that helps them under, understand some of their outcomes and think about how they may be able to improve some of some of their work but ultimately you know I do I think um, I see my role as being in support of other um, amazing educators so what are some of the big ideas that are out there in the communities that you're seeing right now you said that you've been working with a lot mm -hmm. of amazing organizations and whatnot what are you seeing happening yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's, it's a couple of things. One of the things I think is really important just to kind of start with is the idea um, that organizations could be student-led, that organizations um, should be putting processes in place um, for the students to have, you know, a seat at the table, right? Um, these, you know, the, the schools, the education is set up, is designed um, for these students, but oftentimes they're cut out from any meaningful uh, decision-making capacity and they're just kind of, um, you know, just kind of going along with the wind, right? And they, they don't have the space to kind of say, well, this is what I need or, you know, this is what will work for me best, right? And they definitely don't have the, the avenues to really elevate um, those concerns. Um, so I work with organizations that have really embraced this idea of student-led models, whether this is in after-school programs or in actual schools. And what they've done is they've figured out uh, processes to put into place to make sure that the students' um, voices are part of the, the decision-making structure. And to me, I think that's just, um, it's an amazing perspective. Um, to kind of see, but again, it's one of those things where I think, um, you know, this is where I come in and I really feel like I can support um, because in many ways the school isn't really de designed for these processes to really kind of take root, to be evaluated. Um, so I think uh, what I like to see my work is doing is figuring out, okay, well, you know, you, you're trying to go um, this, this student-led route, but you, you need to figure out a way to make sure that it's having the outcomes um, that you want it to have on the students. Um, you need to have uh, formal processes in place to kind of surface um, the perspectives of students and, and things like that. And you just have to have maybe like a formal process so students understand um, how decision-making is, is happening, right? I think transparency becomes a really big um, part of these things as well. But with that, you need to have data. What is it that the students want to do? 
So what type of outcomes do we really want the education system to be producing? And then we, we have to have an education system that really centers those types of outcomes. Because I do, I think there's a, a larger discussion there. Oftentimes we talk a lot about content when we talk about education and there's a conflation between kind of like content mastery and kind of um, academic performance and positive academic outcomes. So we say if you know a, a student does well on this test, right, they have all this content knowledge and they've had a successful outcome. But if you take a step back and you say, well, what we really want students to be able to do is we want students to be able to, to navigate and contribute um, in, a, in an extremely complex world and feel kind of um, um, agentic and contributing to that world, right, in which they can pursue their aspirations and they can, um, you know, get their perspectives heard and they can, you know, move to making the shifts to a society in which they think, you know, are, are necessary, then that's a lot more than just having a particular content. The, the, these skill sets are, uh, I think, a lot more robust than just saying, okay, well, I, I know these things and I can kind of tell it back on a test. So when you talk about student-led, the purpose of it is um, in the, the, the educational kind of nature of it, right? It, it is about elevating these students' voices and making sure that they have a seat at the table. But the reason you want to do that is so that they know how to take up seats um, at tables, you know, as, as they kind of progress in their careers and in their lives, right? And that they feel comfortable doing that. So. The, the things that you really want to be kind of observing or getting data from is how well are, are those attributes kind of being absorbed by the students, right? Are students feeling more comfortable um, contributing? Do they seem to have a better grasp of how to navigate, you know, more complex systems and, and things like that? That's not what they're geared to assess. So I think it's, it's sitting down with operators, uh, program operators, and sitting down with administrators to First of all, understand um, what outcomes that they, they truly want to have, and but what is it that you want students to take away from their experience at you know your school or your program, and then creating uh, metrics and measurements that are aligned with those specific desired outcomes. And I think right now what we have is programs and um, schools that have varied perspectives of what they really want those outcomes for students to be. And you know, um, you know, there's probably a spectrum of how good or you know maybe how shallow. Some of those are right, so I think there's um, definitely you know a, a discussion about that as well. But we're all playing within a system that is saying we're going to orient you towards these particular outcomes, and then that that structures school in a particular type of way. Um, so I do think that things like student-led pushes back against that because as an educational type of a you know, experience for students, but also to elevate their voices and to make them a, a part of just a larger conversation. What's happening? I see some shifts in the education system to put more priority on mm -hmm. these types of outcomes. Mm -hmm. They're also a lot more challenging to be able to to really measure. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, it's kind of easy to give a standardized test mm -hmm. and get the data from that. What are your thoughts about how we can get better at the measurement of these outcomes that you're proposing? So developing um, measurements and evaluations to kind of, you know, look at these more kind of systemic outcomes in tandem with the academic outcomes. Because I also think that there's would be, um, there's lots of interesting things to see in how they relate, right? When you see the academic outcomes in relation to some of these more kind of systemic indicators as well. Um, so I think it's taking a more kind of holistic approach, right? And, and again, this goes back to this idea of um, what is it that 
students and families really want. So if you talk to students and you talk to families and they talk about the outcomes that they want, right? They're not going to say they, you know, want to get um, these grades on a test. You know, oftentimes they're not going to say that they want to graduate from high school, right? What they're going to say is that they want to, you know, have a, a good paying job. One thing I'm really interested in, um, what are our students' uh, social networks and their, their social connections, right? Um, and, um, you know, how is school either helping them to have more connections or, or um, maybe even in some instances um, restricting the, the types of connections um, that they do have. They want to feel like they're a valuable member in society, right? They want to feel like, um, you know, they're, they have um, maybe done a little bit better than um, generations past, right? Like, so those are the outcomes that people are really after, right? Um, and I really think that when we're evaluating education outcomes, it needs to be more oriented to towards these more longitudinal systemic outcomes um, that I think people actually value more so. I think we, we, we look at kind of like content knowledge and academic performance as like an indicator for those things. Um, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's just not, right? There's, there's a lot of disalignment, you know, between academic outcomes and, you know, what actually happens when people are participating in, in the world. When I met you, um, you've been working on a, a project, um, sort of like a, a program or, or an app as part of it. I think there's like some curriculum that you have in mind as mm -hmm. well. Um, for this whole purpose like it's all about networking it's all about your community can you tell the listeners a little bit about your ideas on, on this project that you're working on yeah um i think social capital is extremely important um for students or just well or just for people in general right i think essentially when i talk about outcomes people accomplishing the things that they want to accomplish um we know it has a lot to do with what you know so being a capable, competent person and knowing about the field in many ways, probably equally as important as what you know. And this is something that we talk about, right? If you're in just a, a conversation with, you know, somebody as casual, these, these are things that we recognize and we talk about. But I think in education, um, we've been hesitant to really um, say explicitly, like, yeah, you know, who you know is important and gonna have an impact on you know how successful you are so i think the schools have to recognize that explicitly and say well you know if who you know is important then then the question becomes well what is the role of education educators of facilitating social connections or do do they have a role to facilitate social connections when we know this is you know paramount for student outcomes and i'd argue that schools do have a role in facilitating um, those social connections because we also know the social connections aren't equally distributed right at birth so depending on you know your social economic kind of environment you'll have different connections um, that can be utilized um, for different things and, and saying this i just want to take a, a quick tangent just to say i think it's really important um, not to take a hierarchical view of students kind of social networks and their, their social capital to say well since you know these types of people right you have less social capital um, than people who know these types of people but you have to be honest and say, okay, you know, the connections that students have, depending on where those connections lay, it produces different types of opportunities and they can be utilized in different types of ways. And having an understanding of that, I think, is really important. So we know that there's some students who come from, you know, lower socioeconomic status and 
they may not have the social connections that will get them the internship at the company that they want to work at or if they uh, wanted to start a business right they may not have the the social connections um, that would provide the types of resources um, that would allow them to do so mm -hmm. right um, so then the question really becomes you know what role can educators play in um, reducing that kind of that 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 gap or that disparity in those social connections. And I think that they do have a role to do in that, but what becomes paramount is, first of all, measuring the students' um, social connections that they have, measuring the development of their social connections, and really putting programming in place that's explicitly targeted um, to facilitate uh, social connections um, that are aligned to students' aspirations and their goals. You know, and while we promote this idea of a meritocracy and we, you know, I think a lot of us are enamored with the myth of uh, social mobility. When you look statistically, these types of things, they've never happened to the degree in which we've promoted them to happen and they're happening less now than they had before. And I think that's just, it's important to um, remember if we're thinking about school and education as an institution that's supposed to break that up, right? and. Oftentimes we see education as something that is supposed to disrupt um, social reproduction in favor of social mobility. But the question is, can it truly do that with just a focus on content and not a focus on, you know, these outside factors, one being social capital, but two, just being, you know, just the, the inequity that people just deal with in their day to day lives. Right. And again, these are things like, you know, access to um, affordable housing, um, you know, so being able to stay in the same lo location, um, you know, access to transportation. Um, you know, I actually I saw a study that came out, I mean, it was about a year ago, and it talked about how proximity to public transportation was more predictive of students not dropping out the test scores. Wow. Right, so public transportation was more predictive of students' kind of persistence in school um, than their test scores were. Um, right, so it's just this idea that, like, you know, the, the social structures of what's happening influence what's going to happen in the schools more so than how well students are dealing with content and different things like that. These things are really important. So for me, it all comes back to taking uh, these things serious and understanding that what we can't do any longer is positioning schools as a place that's supposed to disrupt all the inequality that's happening every other place. Um, and say, okay, but when they're coming to school, we're gonna, we're gonna give them so much content and we're gonna be so equal on content knowledge with their more affluent peers um, that, you know, nothing's gonna matter anymore. It's not gonna matter, um, you know, that they, they don't have access to transportation. It's not gonna matter that they have to move constantly in, inflating home prices, right? It's not gonna matter that they don't have adequate access to health care or, or other social services, right? Because, you know, that, that, you know, that doesn't make sense on its surface. You know, all that stuff does matter. And I think um, a, a lot of uh, my perspective is just really saying, okay, yeah, we know it matters. Everybody recognizes it matters. Well, how do we take account of that fully um, in education education policy? Speaking of education policy, you've been doing some work with uh, NEPC. Can you tell the listeners about uh, about the NEPC and how you've been um, supporting or contributing there? Yeah, so the NEPC is the National Education Policy Center. It's a policy center down on the University of Colorado Boulder's campus. And um, you know, the NEPC is largely 
oriented towards providing um, an interpretation of more academic research to uh, broader stakeholders, right? So to education practitioners, um, to uh, people working in the field, uh, to community um, organizations, to families and students. And so what it, it tries to do is to take, um, you know, academic research and, and translate that and also just kind of um, promote it through more kind of like um, traditional media channels, right? So it's not just in like some academic journal or, you know, some place where, you know, uh, most people aren't, aren't reading, right? Um, and more people to read about it. Exactly. The other thing that it tries to do is it also tries to take a lot of the um, studies that are out and do get a lot of traction and sometimes provides a reframing or reinterpretation of the um, of, of studies that get taken up and promoted through popular media and different things like that. Um, and sometimes, right, those things have a particular slant or a particular uh, type of a view um, that they're promoting. So what it also tries to do is offer a counter perspective um, to some research that's kind of out there already. So my work with the NEPC has been um, largely working uh, for the Partnership for the Future of Learning. and. Um, Really, uh, the Partnership for the Future of Learning, what it tries to do is it tries to bring educators together and really uh, people from outside of education together and tries to uh, break down uh, many of the silos that we often see um, and tries to create um, a space for uh, shared knowledge and co-creation. And um, it really tries to do that through creating shared projects um, that people work on together. One thing that I've really been working on is thinking about whole systems reform. So thinking about um, not just reforming education systems, but really understanding the work of people who have been interested in reforming entire systems and how they interact with each other. So not just saying we need to figure out how to improve the education system, but how can we make the education system work more coherently um, within the other systems um, that it's embedded in. So to say that in a simpler way, so to be more concerned about student outcomes broadly, right, more so than just like their, their academic outcomes, and to create policies that, you know, really extend across all the systems that influence student outcomes. So really thinking about that in a more coherent way. Sounds pretty complex. It feels very complex, yes. And I think um, the beauty is there's lots of scholars who have been, you know, working on this. So right now it's drawing on what's out there already and elevating that work. And I think uh, that's really what we're in the process of right now is scanning the field, drawing on um, organizations that have been doing this work, um, drawing on um, scholars that have um, really been putting out uh, various frameworks to approach this work from, providing a synthesis of what they've been doing and what they found out, um, and elevating their work. So I, I think that's really what we're engaged in because it is complex. Um, so I think what we want to do is um, we, we, we want to figure out um, yeah, what are the best practices, what are organizations, what, what have they been doing, and what can we build off of. I love that y'all are focusing on more threads throughout. More threads, more, I uh, think, network weaving, maybe, um, amongst people who are kind of uh, working in uh, various systems, um, social systems. 
Yeah, I think, um, like, when, when we sit back and we think about even COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on um, just our economy, on the schools, um, but one of the things to me that really stands out is you look at workplaces and schools shutting down and you look at how it's intertwined, right? So you have families who have this additional responsibility for caring for their children, right? So since their children aren't in schools any, any longer, and at the same time, they're still responsible for working at home. So you have economic productivity slowing down because, you know, they're playing like these dual roles. And, right, so you, you see how children being in school is so heavily tied to the economy and economic productivity and things like that, right? Um, but yet, I guess what I'm saying there is we see how these things are intertwined and COVID-19 lays that bare, right? It lays it bare about how different um, social classes are being impacted by COVID. It lays it bare how, you know, the economic and the school system are uh, connected. And so the idea that all of these things are kind of intertwined and, you know, if you push on one area, it's gonna pull on the other area, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, COVID just um, and everything that's happened since really just kind of just just really exposes all of that. And so when you're thinking about, OK, well, how are we going to respond to that? It's more than just, well, we're going to reopen schools or not, because, you know, reopen, that's a Band-Aid, you know, to reopen schools or to close schools. Right. We need to take a step back and say, OK, well, look at all of the, the byproducts of all of these different connections and everything like that. And how how do we create policies that would mitigate this uh, from happening in the future right would mitigate you know one part of the system being stressed and causing you know so much stress to other parts of the system and that's why things have that's why policy has to be more coherent and it has to be seen as interacting with each other right healthcare policy has to be seen as in concert or in tandem with education policy when I think um, historically, right, they've been seen as kind of separate entities, but they, you know, they play off each other. And at times, right, um, things that impact one impact the other. Brian, I'm gonna turn, turn the tables just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna talk about you personally. Tell the listeners, what has been your best failure? My best failure? I don't know. I think um, hmm, it's hard to say what is a failure. I, I, I do try to embrace like a growth mindset, right? So not to necessarily um, look at things as a failure. It's definitely um, things I would have wished have gone differently or went differently or I definitely could have, you know, approached things differently. But one thing that stands out for me, I think, is my transition to getting to grad school. So, and not so much that it was a failure, but just it was a moment of time where I, I learned a lot. Um, and it was just, just an intense moment of learning. So I worked for um, a charter management organization and I did um, community engagement for them. And, um, you know, a lot of my work was oriented towards expansion, right? So the CMO was trying to expand and you know a, a lot of my work was in, in support of them doing so right so we had a strategic plan and um, what i did oftentimes was work with the families um, to advocate for the organization right so help them develop speeches to deliver at board of education meetings 
you know, work with them to canvas neighborhoods, to talk to other parents, to do community meetings, talk to other parents about um, the school and different things like that. And the tension there was many of the parents felt that the school was better than many of the other options. So they, they, they did appreciate the school and many of the services that the school was providing. Um, but while they appreciated the school, they also had criticisms and critiques of the school. And one of the biggest tensions I felt was while we asked these parents to publicly support the school um, and, you know, use their social capital, right, and um, in their neighborhoods and things like that for the school's benefit, right, when those same parents came back and said, well, you know, we have an issue with the discipline policies, um, we have an issue with uh, the diversity of the, the teaching staff, those issues weren't but at the same time, we're going back and we're saying, but we want you to go out and promote, um, you know, how great this school is. But we don't want you to come in to the school and to say, you know, what what you think needs to be changed here. Um, and to me, it was just attention. And it really came to this idea. We weren't really addressed. Thinking about what does authentic community engagement really look like, right? It can't be this one-way street where we use the parents and their social capital and their social connections um, for the benefit of an organization. But at the same time, when when you know the organization is in a position of power and they don't necessarily have to budge on something like you know, a particular policy and stuff like that, we're not necessarily as accessible um, for those same parents advocating within that organization. So it just really made me think about what what does true you know an authentic community engagement um, what does what does it look like? And so I think that was one of the like I said, it was really an intense period of learning. One of the things that really motivated me to go to graduate school to pursue my PhD. And I think ultimately one of the reasons why I was so interested in this idea of community-based research, right, and, and figuring out the best practices um, to put processes in place to surface um, constituents you know, perspectives and their voices and things like that, because it's not something you can do haphazard and just say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, you know, do a couple surveys, we're going to have a couple community forums, and through that, we're going to, you know, have community voice, we're going to have the voice of our constituents, right? You have to be uh, serious about the processes that you put in place to uncover what those views and those perspectives are, but then you also have to have processes in place that make sure that they actually get incorporated in, um, you know, what the decision making looks like and the new policies and practices that come out of it. It's got to be authentic listening, right? It has to be authentic listening, but uh, again, you know, it has to be, um, like I said, processes in place and there has to be accountability to, um, you know, listening to those voices and things like that, right? I think. Um, you know, it can't just be this idea of, okay, well, we heard you and that's good enough because we created a space to hear you. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, now if we don't listen, you know, we can just say, well, we heard you. Do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your big advice for other humble badass educators? Hmm. The humility is more important than the badassery. <laughs> you know, I think um, in education, I think in many ways humility um, makes you a badass. You know, I think um, <laughs> the funny thing about educators is they're all really very educated, you know, oftentimes. So I think, um, you know, we have an, an air of uh, smartness to us um, that sometimes uh, plays out in an elitism to the uh, families and the communities um, that we're trying to serve. You know, I often think 
uh, myself too as somebody who's in a PhD program. And you know, my program is full of people who, you know, graduated top of their class or, you know, cum laude, you know, all of these, you know, amazing kind of um, academic achievements. And sometimes I think one of the tensions is, you know, and that's uh, frankly just not my background. I wasn't the greatest student, but I, I think there's value to that. There's value to somebody who went through school and struggled through school, um, working to think about how to reform school systems because, you know, it can't just be a coalition of people whose school worked for, whose school um, in many ways was the impetus of their success, right? Because of how well they did in school, it elevated them, right? I think it's um, sometimes challenging um, for people who that's been their experience to see, you know, what may need to change in school. Um, so again, it goes back to the humility. You have to be able to listen to people who dropped out of school, who didn't do well in school, who school didn't work for, um, because they're the ones who can tell you what needs to be changed about school. Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure sitting down and picking your brain about some really heavy stuff here. I, I'm, I'm so impressed with the, some of these things that you're really thinking about and you're pushing for and you're, and you're working, working on. I think that we need more badasses like you out there to push the systemic change to make us kind of realize how these things are so intertwined and inter interconnected. So again, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. I really appreciate you uh, for having me. So I feel very honored and, you know, please keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.